This Week at Hope Point. God shatters the kingdom of darkness by playing the by, by placing the torch of gospel hope in the trembling hands of somebody who is not qualified to do the job in terms of their own power. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. The more that you understand um, what Christians are going through all around the world, the more you will say there's a lot to pray for. There's much to pray for. And that's why Paul made such a radical statement in Ephesians um, 6, uh, 18 that we looked at last week, really two weeks now, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions <laughs> with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Well, we looked at those verses and said, well, that sort of covers it. I mean, pray for the people that you know, people in this church you see but don't really know, and then pray for people, believers all around the world you've never met, but just read about that they are in need of prayer. So you, we, we looked at that two weeks and sort of thought, well, that's about all we can say about those verses. And then all of a sudden, uh, Paul goes from 30,000 feet flying down to 1,000 feet and says, there's one more person to pray for. And he says, pray for me. Just just shocks us. He's begging you, pray for the church, pray for the church, pray for others, pray for missionaries, then pray for me. Pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. So not very difficult to figure out that he's writing while he is a prisoner for Jesus Christ. He was writing from the Mamertine prison in Rome. You can visit that even still today, it was an underground room beneath the streets of the city. It was dirty, dark, lonely, smelly dungeon of a cell. And then inside the cell, he was even, as he said, even inside the cell, he was in chains, chained to the floor, even though he was guarded by a Roman centurion, still in chains. And his daily visits came by way of rats, who were scurrying across the filthy floor. But ever so often, he would encounter new guards, uh, maybe new officials to hear his case, or maybe believers or pastors, maybe, but not many. But for the moment, he is, his calling is a prison ministry that he did not sign up for. And so he says, pray for me. Pray for me. The Apostle Paul is very honest about the the sufferings that endure when you preach Jesus Christ to a Jesus-crucifying world. That's risky business. Serving Christ is the greatest privilege of his life, yet he doesn't hold anything back. He says, none of this is easy for me. Pray for me. Very humble statement. It's like a, a man putting his hands on the shoulders of his friend and saying, Do you, don't don't leave me till you get this. Pray for me. Do you understand? I need prayer. So he's boldly told all the believers, pray for this, pray for that. But now he says, at the bottom of your prayer list, would you at least add my name? I have no hope unless you pray for me. Pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. So the title of my sermon today is Pray For Me, and it's sort of directed at me. And if you say, oh, that sounds sort of like selfish when you just, you know, you know all the needs of the world, and you say, hey, pray for me. Well, if, you, if it sounds selfish to you, it's because you just don't understand 
the work of the gospel, that you are called to do something that is impossible to do unless God touches your life. If someone possessed all the spiritual gifts listed in the Bible, and there's 33 of them, the work cannot be done by simply organizing and planning and executing as you can in other industries. You're trying to persuade people to follow Christ while Satan is trying to persuade them to reject Christ. It's like a, every day the, the, the gospel worker suits up and goes on the field and while he's trying to lead his team to execute a play, the stadium is filled with demonic voices trying to tell his team, don't. They're loud voices. So any Christian leader who's aware of his great calling and the great weakness of his body and Satan's great strength is going to ask for prayer. Paul knew it's not by the power of his intellect or the charm of his personality, the depth of his logic, the knowledge of his teaching, or certainly for him, not his physical appearance, which was mocked. Satan cannot be defeated by some handsome dude wearing skinny jeans. Satan, he, he probably likes skinny jeans. God shatters the kingdom of darkness by, playing the, by, by placing the torch of gospel hope in the trembling hands of somebody who is not qualified to do the job in terms of their own power. And then... Paul says, go light up your world with that torch. The Apostle Paul was well-educated, uh, well-trained, great experience. And prior to preaching, he had it made. Uh, he had a great career as a Jewish rabbi, had comforts, enough money, uh, would have had a lot of fame because he was so smart. But now as, as an evangelist and a church planner for Jesus, he, he had no money. No connections, no status, and the more he served, the more that he had a decreasing loyalty among the people that he had discipled. Because this was written to the church of Ephesus while he was in prison in Rome. He was released and then rearrested, and he wrote another letter, but not to the church, but to its pastor. So the last letter that he wrote before he was executed was to the pastor of this church. It was written to a pastor named Timothy. And so then this is what he said as he's in that prison cell once again. Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.15, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But every leader that Paul discipled and poured his heart into in Asia was gone by this time because he was an embarrassment to them. Their leader could not stay out of jail. And then his lifestyle, he, his zeal for the Lord was so provocative that he said, follow me as I follow Christ and they said, to jail? 
And then they say, no, no, no. We signed up for great music, great teaching, and fun mission trips. But not suffering. Certainly not suffering the loss of material possessions and the loss of freedom and the loss of, of life. So there he was alone in the prison cell. And can you imagine the attacks that came against him when everybody you trained leaves you? I mean, it's like, come on, y'all, get into this. You know what he's feeling. You know what he's hearing because you would hear it. Hey, Paul, this is your fault. If you would have uh, taught better, lived better, led better, they would have stayed. But this mass desertion is your fault. You have failed. You should quit. You know, we had to hear that. You would hear that. Uh, Satan, in the Bible, one of his titles is the accuser. So he just constantly accuses us that we're not enough. There's no way, you know, God would accept you. You're not as good as the people that are sitting next to you in the chairs. They got life together. You don't. Therefore, like, there's no hope for you. He just accuses, accuses. And then for the leader, he says, you have no idea what you're doing. And that's why the, the work is hard. It is amazing how much effort Satan goes to to bring down leaders. It's just relentless. Somebody sent me an article this week uh, I don't know if you follow Tim Challies, but he posts like a, about 100 things a day. So I don't really have time to read all of his blogs, but this was one of them. He didn't write it. He just like reposted it. This is sort of what he does. So you could find it through Tim Challies or you could go to reformation21.org. It's on our website too. We put, we put it on the uh, sermon notes link. So the title of the blog was, You Probably Have a Good Pastor. And the timing of the article being sent to me was really interesting in light of Paul being deserted by all the leaders in Ephesus. But here's the, here's the gist of the article. We live in a day and age in which it's popular to, to, like, to find those, really, those minority Christian pastors and leaders that are so toxic that they have done, really, a bad service to the name of Christ. And they're out there for sure. But it seems popular to go after them. And then here's what, here's, I'll just quote the article. The pastor says, Tim Pruitt says, it seems like everywhere you turn, there are discussions being had about bad pastors. He said, but I think that the focus of bad pastors has been overdone. Why are there not more articles written on toxic church members? who discourage and destroy the work of pastors through endless complaints, accusations, and attacks. Then Todd Pruitt goes on to say, of course there are bad pastors and they should not be leading, but most of us have good pastors. Not perfect, but faithful. Yet they're undermined oftentimes by church members, church staff, church leadership. At one time, their call has been a source of great joy, but sadly, many of these men have left the ministry altogether. And then he, uh, the last paragraph, he says, now lest I be misunderstood. And he's a pastor, so I like him writing about this. I'm not suggesting that pastors should expect a carefree vocation filled with rainbows and puppies. The call to pastor is a call to suffer. It is irresponsible for a pastor to expect the ministry to be a pleasure cruise. But 
people feel more free than ever to give the fullest reign of their dislike and criticisms of their church leadership. This summer, we had an unbelievable time where we celebrated 20 years as a church and we gathered at Barnett Park and we had months of planning and we had on that day just a deluge of rain, thunder, lightning. Like, I don't think I've ever, I can't even remember seeing a storm that bad. And we just thought the whole thing was not going to happen. And we put out a social media post, give us a half hour. And, you know, right when we thought this is over, those dark clouds rolled away and all of a sudden there was, you know, blue, radiant sky and, and we had one kind of great night. And then, so Friday, we, we carried that over to Sunday and it was just, uh, it was a whole weekend of celebration. But I, I want to tell you that I cannot... Uh, articulate to you that since July 14th of that year of, 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 of this summer of celebration, it's like there has been more uh, articulation of things that are wrong with this church to the point that the intensity of, the, of, the, of, of what's wrong here was stronger than the storm we faced on July 14th. To the point that it, it has almost washed away the joy of the 20-year celebration. So I want you to read that article so that you will not go down that road of producing just unnecessary discouragement in all of the staff who lead you. We are working hard on every single shortcoming and this is a marvelous work. Praise God. Enjoy that. Don't be discouraged and don't be a source of discouragement. So Paul, you can imagine sitting in that Roman prison cell and Satan telling him, everybody left you because it was your fault, Paul. You should quit. And, in, and instead of quitting, Paul says, uh, would you pray for me that I can press on and do more? So he knows that he doesn't have it within himself to make this thing work because he just proved by everybody deserting him, okay, it's not on me. It's not, I don't have the power to make a church stay together. I don't have the power to make Christian leaders stick it out. So now I'm gonna go back, once again, ask the church at Ephesus, would you pray for me? Because I need a power that is not my own. I'm not strong enough, I'm not witty enough, I need a power greater than my, myself. So, if you really want to know how weak Paul was, you know, it just always blows my mind when people come to me and say, hey, do you think the Apostle Paul is sort of arrogant by the thing he writes? I'm like, I think it would, you would you'd get your answer if you just read the Bible. He's so broken and humble, and he says that a number of times, but nothing like he did to the church of Corinth when he talked about what he feels. 2 Corinthians 1.8, we do not want you to be uninformed about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So, lest you misunderstand Since the summer, I've been overwhelmed by visibly seeing God do more than I've ever seen him do in my life here, but it's only because of your praying. It's like, it's unbelievable. You were praying this church. For 20 years, you've prayed this church into wellness. So keep it up. I cannot tell you the hundreds of blessings that we see here. And it's all because of prayer. But it does come by way of some discouraging times. In 1871, Charles Spurgeon uh, wrote a letter to his church. Now remember, this church by this time was running 4,000 in 1871. And he was 37 years old. And he was already sort of known as a, you know, just the boy wonder of England. He was a great gifted man, preacher. But at this particular time, he had been off from the church for three months due to physical illness. In fact, he missed one third of his entire ministry due to illness. And it wasn't always physical illness. Sometimes it was mental illness. Battled depression really hard. So he writes a letter to his church to give them an update on how he's doing. This is his letter. This is 1871. Dear friends, the furnace still blows around me. Since I last preached to you, I have been brought very low. My spirit has been frustrated with depression. I entreat you not to cease your supplications. Don't go pray it. I am as a potter's vessel when it is utterly broken, useless, and laid aside. Nights of watching, days of weeping have been mine, but I hope the cloud is passing. In this trial, I ask you again for your prayers, your suffering pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I mean, if you ask me, what is the true definition of humility? It's right there. It's just saying, pray for me. I'm weak. I'm up against things I cannot do on my own. That is humility. Both of these men, Spurgeon and the Apostle Paul, show us that, that uh, humility is not giving up. It's not running away. It's not giving in. It's just admitting, I don't have the strength to do this. They recognize it truly is a supernatural thing that happens for a Christian leader. It is interesting that when you look at uh, the Apostle Paul and Charles Spurgeon, both of those men, in my opinion, look like the weakest people in all of Christian history, yet they are regarded as the most influential leaders in Christian history. Why? Because the church was praying for them. The church was praying for them. Humility, it, 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 it unplugs the cord from pride, from the outlet of pride and self-sufficiency and plugs it in the outlet of complete dependency on God. That's what humility is. It's just admitting to other people, I need help. Would you, would you pray for me? It's all it is. I mean, people 
who will not ask someone else to pray for them are just plain out prideful, arrogant people. Because they're saying, no matter how miserable I am, I still have these resources over here. I'm going to rely on those. But the humble person says, I'm out. Would you pray for me? Exactly what Paul did. And look what he prays for. That whenever I speak, words may be given me that I could fearlessly make known the gospel. I thought we'd get through the whole text verse this week. We're going to look at his prayer for this week for his prayer for words. Would you help me? Would you pray for I have words? Next week he said, would you pray I wouldn't be a coward? I would preach with boldness. So this week's just words. Pray for words. You know, it's funny when you, sometimes you could see somebody coming across the lobby or your hallway or whatever at work, and they come to you, you know what they're going to talk about? Like, you just, they always talk about the same thing. They're, they're perfect children, they're imperfect spouse, and the great exciting weekend they just had. And you're sitting here saying, and you just feel, leave the conversation, feel like a loser because like, your children are bad, and you're the imperfect spouse, and your weekend was so bad. Dull. <laughs> Whenever Paul makes his way to you in Scripture or to these churches, he's always asking the same thing. Always talking about the same thing. Would you pray for me that I would be a better witness for Christ? You could count on it. He's going to be talking about Jesus and his desire to serve him more. I'm not saying that our typical prayers in the church are bad. I've just said they could be better. Like, instead of like, I mean, praying for a 90-year-old person in a nursing home to get healed, why do you pray for them to go to heaven and see Christ and be rewarded? And spend your time praying for the 19-year-old student on his way to hell. Pray for them to come to church, come to Christ. Paul is begging you to pray for the advancement of the gospel. May our prayers be about gospel advance in addition to the other things that are obviously on your heart as well. So he... He prays, pray that I'd be given words. Words. My preaching professor used to tell us in our homiletics class, he said, gentlemen, when you, when you make your way to the center and to the podium, he said, all you've got in that moment is words. Be good at them. <laughs> Choose them carefully. So that's what Paul is asking for. Would you pray for me that I would... I would choose the right words to say. And I just look at this, I say, are you kidding me? You know all the words, Paul. You, you didn't just write a good book. <laughs> you wrote half of the New Testament. You wrote the book of Romans, Paul. The ultimate treatise on salvation Paul, you wrote Ephesians, the ultimate treatise on the church. Paul, you wrote 1 Thessalonians, the ultimate treatise on the return of Christ. You got the words. 
And so you can sort of see in his request for that begging, pray for the words to be given to me, that he said, hey, this is not a faucet that I just turn on and off when I want to. It's God. I have to have his words or I can't write and I can't speak. Or as Billy Graham used to say, my lips are clay until God's people pray. So the sermon comes from the Lord. The children's sermon, the English Crossing sermons. I was just looking this past week of all the lessons that Katie wrote on the book of John for our six language groups, all the way from you know, Latin America to Ukraine to Russia to Swahili. She wrote 40 lessons on the book of John. What's she doing that for? How does she do that? Serving discussion, I mean, discussion questions for six language groups. So she has to, I have to, she has to, all who lead have to wait on the words for God to give them. Because basically all you're doing as a teacher is you're using new words to highlight ancient words. I mean, God's already spoken, and in his mystery, he's like giving you the opportunity to say new words that serve as a yellow highlighter for his word. My wife and I, above our fireplace, we have uh, a painting uh, we bought in, uh, well, we saw it in Charleston years ago. The artist is named Stephen Schumann, and all of his work is, uh, it's interesting. He's, he, everything's distorted or either multicolored. And it's just, this is Rainbow Row, you know, in Charleston, but you know, the buildings are tilted. So it's just, it's just so pleasurable to look at. It's so funky. So we saw it in this art gallery in Charleston and it it was $3,000. And I told Lisa, you know, and she, of course, no, like, no, let's just, we'll stay here as long as you want (laughs) to look at it. So we bought this little 12 by 16 version of it, this little print of it, took it home. And I don't know what happened to me. It's just it's parts of my flesh that are still there. It's part, part of the like, little, little bit of redneck in me that I still cannot be cured of. I thought it would just be a great idea to take that 12 by 16 down to Kinko's and ask them to blow it up and to be full size, just like I saw it. But for some reason, there's enough sensitivity in my conscience for doing right that I decided to call the artist Stephen Schumann first and said, hey, would you mind if I did that? And he said, well, sorta. (laughs) He said, that's how I make my living. He said, I'll cut you a deal though. He said, I have a process in in my studio, it's called Giclee. And it's really just this high-end, high-dollar printer, inkjet printer, by which I run canvas through it uh, based on the original, and it comes mighty close. He said, I'll sell you that for $600. That's a deal. And he said, and what he said, what was best, he said, and for whatever colors are not right, they're just not like the original. I will take my brush once it comes through, and I will repaint whatever colors I think need to be uh, emphasized. So we got it and it's been above our, our fireplace for a long time. But what he did, that process he described as you clay, this is the job of the pastor 
teacher. Because here's the original artwork, what God has said. And there's never, like, I'm never going to say anything really new. I mean, if I do, watch out. <laughs> so I don't really have anything new to say, but it's like Giclée. I'm just making a copy of this using 21st century words so you can see the portrait and so clearly. Just using new words to love so you'll love the original words of God. So God has written everything down we need to know in a book. The job of the preacher is to you. This is crazy what I do. My job is to use words not in, that are not in Scripture so that you'll love the words that are in Scripture. Now that's just, that's the mystery of God right there. And it's just amazing how it happens that these words, you know, that are not in Scripture, that help you understand Scripture, you know where they come from? They come from your prayers. I mean, to, you know, I mean, I left a party last night, and it was amazing the things that changed in this uh, sermon from this morning. And somebody's praying, and I was listening to God. I can't tell you how many times I have, you know, I had a bad stint in a church in Greenville. Things didn't work out very well. But I preached a series there on Hebrews 11 and all the people that walked with God and did heroic things by faith in Hebrews 11. And so when I left that church, I took that same series down to another church. And I was only there for five months. They just needed me to fill in for a while. But in five months, with that same series, we added 100 people in five months. Same words, but this time they were prayed for by a mighty praying church. Your prayers are what make the difference, no matter how much I study, and it's your prayers that pray these messages into existence. So Paul says, pray that I'd be given the words. It's a passive verb. It's, it's really the picture of somebody receiving something. Somebody is, something is happening to you. Like, I can't make this happen. Pray that something happens to me, is what Paul's saying. Words happen to me. <sighs> because, you know, when I pick up my Bible, I mean, it's like, I love it anytime I read it, but it's different than helping you love it. That's, that's what I'm searching for. What are the words that will help you love what I just loved that, that day? And I love how one... The old hymn writer said it this way. Oh, teach me, Lord, that I may teach the precious things that you impart and wing my words that they may reach the hidden depths of many a heart. I love that phrase. It's one of my all-time favorite phrases in the hymn. Put wings to my words. I mean, it's crazy. Like, like from here, God just, you know, just put, take these words and attach them to the Holy Spirit and may they just fly out. To your heart, your heart, yours, 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 and change your life so that you'll want to leave sin and love Christ and take all your worries and turn them into trusting God. And this, so what happens from here to 
just, you know, 60 feet away is, I think, our longest distance away is God, the Holy Spirit, his wings, taking words and making them, planting them deeply in your, in your heart. If you go to the shell space over there, our unfinished portion, I got years and years of old sermons and notebooks, and whenever I open those notebooks, I just sit there and I just marvel. I like to say, well, who wrote that? Because it wasn't me, and I could not write it again. But for that week, for whoever I was serving that week, God helped me write words. Somebody prayed for me, as they did this week. You know, people always ask the question, I love this. It seems like this is the litmus test of spirituality. People say, hey, can you preach without notes? You know, or you have to have these, can you preach without notes? Well, yes, I can. Then, well, why don't you? Because I hear the sermons of other people who preach without notes. <laughs> and I wish they had used notes. I just want to be exact, finding the best word as a highlighter for the eternal truth, the ancient truths of God. This last Thursday night, Lisa came home from a women's event, and just as with all the things, because you're praying, most of the things that go on at Hope Point, I don't really know about. We talk about them as staff, but I don't really know who plans it, who runs it. So 50 women gathered for a night of prayer and singing. Lisa came home and she'd tell me, you know, this person sang beautifully. Do you know them? I said, no, I don't. This person led in prayer. Do you know them? Nope. It's just, you know, you're praying so much, so much is happening. And so anyway, Lisa said, well, I just want to let you know, Richard, you were prayed for tonight. Oh, bingo. The greatest of all words. I'm praying for you, praying for you. I mean, I like it when somebody says, hey, pastor, we're thinking about you. That's fine, that means you love me. But there's a part two to thinking about. Your thinking's gotta lead to praying. You gotta do battle. So let your thinking turn into praying. Prayer's the work that happens after the thinking about somebody. You gotta pray for people you're thinking about because Jesus Christ died on a cross so that you would have access to God so that you could take the sorrows and the pain and the addictions and the frustration, the hurt of people and you could take them and, and actually put them before God. You have to pray for them because Jesus enabled you to do that. Here's some prayers I've recently received, received from the past three weeks by way of text from people in this church. Uh, one text, I'm praying that the word of God would, rich, uh, would dwell in you richly and you would be refreshed physically and mentally. Uh, I pray that you would be tender to the Holy Spirit. Another person wrote, I pray that you will rest in the arms of your father even as waves buffet you. And then this week I received this text from a dear brother in India. Hello, Pastor how are you? I was very much disturbed in my sleep yesterday and urged by the Spirit to lift you before the throne of grace. The God who called you is faithful. Man. I'm praying for you. 
It's the best. I hope you will frequently say that to people that you love and then either pray for them right then or right after you leave them, keep that commitment. It's, it's the only way they're going to make it to the shores of heaven. You pray for them and pray for me. Pray for me. I've got nothing unless you pray. You say, well, how can we pray for you this week? Well, number one, I thank you. You, you, prayed, you prayed this into existence. I, like, you know, sermon never existed before until, like, you know, Friday. I mean, I worked, take notes all the time. You prayed it into existence and then some last night. Thank you. So then this afternoon, if you would pray for me at two, premarital counseling. So I say, pray for me that I would have the right words to, you know, launch this couple off happily ever after. Pray for me. And then at 4.30 this afternoon, pray for me as I go to my small group, and I hope all of you are in a small group so you can share your hurts and your needs with other believers and talk about sermons and stuff. But pray for me that when I go to my small group, I'd be sensitive to what people are saying. I would respond rightly. I would hear graciously. Pray for me. And that tonight when I get home, would you pray for me as I begin to work on a, a, a funeral of a, of a 31-year-old girl who died yesterday of, of a drug overdose after years of being bound. And I'll stand by her casket at a graveside what would you say? Well, that's what I want to know. Would you pray for me? That somehow in the midst of those broken-hearted parents, somehow I would winsomely, lovingly, sympathetically, compassionately, yet boldly make known the gospel of Christ. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.